I definitely find when I'm in nature, I'm seeking that sense of getting out of myself and kind mm-hmm. of getting out of my own kind of my, my thinking, my anxieties, etc., my worries. I'm wanting to tune into something bigger than myself. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends and Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs, and I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Recently, I caught up with Lucy Jones, author of Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild. We explored our deep, primal connection to nature and how it's transformed her life and how it can transform yours too. Now, if you know me, you might know that this is probably one of my favourite topics and I was so thrilled that Lucy was able to share her powerful experiences with us. Woody Allen famously decried nature when he said, I love nature, I just don't want to get any of it on me. And, you know, for a long time, I had similar feelings towards nature. I grew up in South London. Uh, My experience of nature was really limited to kind of dusty parks or watching scraggly old foxes milling about in the middle of the day, wondering what happened to the feet of all those poor footless pigeons that seemed to be hobbling about. I didn't even own a pair of wellies until I was about 33. But over the last decade or so, I have fallen head over heels, madly, passionately and just crazily in love with nature. Today, I probably own more pairs of shoes covered in mud than I don't because I'm in and out of the woods and the forests and the marshes more regularly than I'm not. For me, being in nature is my happy place and I have spent the last few years learning about it and also trying to persuade anybody who will listen that the natural world really could be their happy place too if they'd simply give it a go. Perhaps, like me, they'd simply forgotten about how great the natural outdoors is. And I would often cry, you know, get outside, get your hands dirty. Nature is amazing. And I would tell anybody, particularly those that weren't listening, because nature really can make you happier, healthier and kinder. And there is proof. Now, happily, there are more people than ever who are learning about this restorative power of nature. And thankfully, some of them, like Lucy, are even turning their experiences into an urgent, passionate and compelling call to arms to really help us better understand how nature impacts us and what we need to do to help protect it and restore it for all our sakes. So grab your headphones, Give this a listen, preferably while you're out taking your daily exercise. Enjoy. So I have been uh, a lover of the natural world for 
only a short amount of time, really, probably for the last 10 to 15 years, I've been kind of falling in love, falling back in love with nature and particularly through my work, working in the drinks industry to help more people be aware of the sort of great outdoors and um, all of the benefits that it can bring. Um, and as I was just explaining, Lucia, when I read your book, I felt that it was a very personal uh, experience for me reading the book because of um, how you describe your sort of awakening into the natural world. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your, your background? You know, how did you first discover that nature had a sort of benefit to you? Was it, did you grow up loving nature or did it come to you sort of later in life? Sure. Um, thanks, Claire. Um, yeah, I was, I was lucky that I, I had um, um, experiences in nature as a kid. So my dad loves birds and my mum is a painter and paints the natural world a lot. So, um, I mean, I, I grew up in the Thames Valley in quite an urban area, but we still, I was taken out for walks and and I was always the kind of kid who would collect ladybirds and aphids and, and spiders and stuff um, in my little, my little um, see-through box. Um, but then I think probably like a lot of people, when I became a teenager, um, I was less interested in the natural world. This was the nineties and it just wasn't very cool to be into nature. And I was more interested in, you know, kind of going out and music and all, all, everything that goes with that. Um, and so my kind of relationship with the rest of nature was, was dormant apart from, I suppose, kind of watching, um, David Attenborough documentaries, um, or kind of occasionally going for walks. And then um, in my mid to late 20s, I've been working in London as a journalist um, for quite a while. I was quite burnt out, um, having a bit of a kind of emotional breakdown, and I was going into recovery for various things. And um, I knew that running could be good for your mental health. So I started to kind of go for runs around Walthamstow, which was near where I lived. Um, but I found that I'd go on the runs and then I'd end up kind of just walking because I wanted to look at the trees and the, watch out for kestrels or, you know, look out for a water bowl in the canal and look at the, the insects and the flowers and so on. And that became... Um, a really important part of my recovery at that time. Um, and I suppose it's quite naive, but I didn't really um, expect it to be so powerful. Um, mm -hmm. I had kind of psychotherapy that was working well, psychiatry that was good, the support of friends and family and of other addicts at the time. Um, and that was helpful. But this connection with nature and this kind of need to be with nature every day um, was quite kind of elusive and diffuse. I, I didn't really understand what was happening, um, but I, I felt that I needed it as much as I needed the other things. Afterwards, I'd feel kind of calmer and soothed and um, kind of just that my nervous system, my brain was more relaxed. I was less self-critical and so on. Um, and that quickly became a kind of problem that I wanted to solve in that I didn't understand how and why it was happening. So I guess a lot of people would intuit that um, 
you know, going for a walk on the beach or in the woods makes us feel happy or well. But what I really wanted to do and, and what became the book was kind of drill down into the nuts and bolts and find out what does spending time in nature do to our brains, to our nervous systems, to our um, kind of unconscious uh, and so on, you know, it, it all being connected. Um, and that kind of, that started the research journey, which turned into the book. Mm. Was there, um, you know, many of us go out into nature and as you've described, have a lovely time and we feel soothed by it. Um, but, but very few people come home and think, oh, this, you know, maybe I'll write a book about this or I'll do some more like, you know, investigation about this. Was there an aha moment for you or um, was it more of a sort of gradual awakening or, or was there something that actually made you think, hold on, what's, what's going on here? I think it was probably when, um, so we were living in a flat in Clapton. Um, we were quite far from, maybe if it was like a 15 minute walk to, to Walthamstow Marshes, but it was pretty kind of built up. But outside my bedroom window, there was a most beautiful pear tree. Um, and it would kind of blossom in this stunning way every spring. And then the leaves would come out. And as I was kind of learning how to, to live sober and kind of get on my feet a little bit more, I really fastened my hope to this tree and got quite attached to it. And then the upstairs neighbours were doing some building work and they put up a load of scaffolding, like really thick scaffolding, which concealed the tree from my view. And I didn't anticipate this, but I was very surprised by how kind of intense my psychological reaction was to it. I found it it just really stressed me out. I felt kind of um I was ratty and I snapped at my my boyfriend and I sent them passive aggressive text messages asking when they were going to take the scaffolding down. Um and I didn't I didn't quite understand what was happening to me. So that that then moved my thinking on to to the question, is our lack of connection with nature or is our kind of estrangement and our, yeah, our disconnection from the natural world in some ways bad for our minds? Because I'd kind of had this, you know, falling in love again with the rest of nature and then it was kind of taken away. And it, it just kind of underlined the, the potential power that it could have. Um, and so I wanted to figure out, I just was interested I'm one of those annoying people who wants to know why, 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 you know. Um, and I was working as a science journalist mostly at the time. Um, and as I was interviewing different scientists about various things, we would often get onto the subject of, you know, climate crisis and ecological crisis and, and the way the habitat, habitat loss and so on. And the impact of that on mental health, mm. um, which I was particularly interested in. And so that then fed in this different through line into the narrative of, um, you know, how the ecological crisis and our estrangement from nature is affecting our mental health, you know, as a society, as individuals, is it bad for our minds? Mm. And in writing the book, did you imagine that you might uncover um, the silver bullet, you know, the, the one thread, the one thing that um, gives nature its power 
uh, to restore us. Um, and, and can you explain that? You know, what, what were you were you searching for? Just the one little nugget, and what happened when you sort of started digging? Yeah, I really was at the beginning. I really thought that there might be a silver bullet. Um, so I thought it might be something to do with the brain or the nervous system. Um, I thought I might find kind of one study or one um, one discipline that might kind of unlock unlock it for me. Um, and what happened was I was really lucky and, and kind of with the timing. Um, as I started to read and research and kind of you know, talk to scientists, I realised that actually um, hundreds, perhaps thousands of scientists um, in all sorts of disciplines across the world have been trying to look at this this question um, for really quite seriously for about a decade. Um, but the kind of early early studies go back much much further back than that. Um, so from kind of environmental psychologists to people studying the science of awe to those studying kind of fractals and shapes. Um, you know, how the effect of rain, the smell of petrichor, which is the smell of the earth after it's rained, affects our brains. So so I just walked into this really kind of vibrant um, research field where there was all sorts of conferences happening and and lots of really interesting um, scientists looking at the puzzle uh, in the way that I wanted to do from, from different angles. Um, but I think the thing which really surprised me and, and blew my mind was, um, as I went through, that there, there wasn't a silver bullet piece of evidence. It was it was extremely multifaceted. It's almost like a diamond. There were so many different kind of facets of of this relationship, you know, which which is different for lots of people. And nature obviously means different things to lots of people too. Um, but it seemed to me that. But as I was learning and reading that that nature had the potential to affect um, the human kind of from our heads to our toes, you know, from, mm. from affecting our brain chemistry to perhaps triggering kind of ancestral memories or genetic, genetic memories of our hunter-gatherer pasts um, to the effect of kind of bacteria in the soil, which we might uh, breathe in and can um, has associations with decreasing inflammation um, to, um, you know, calming and a balancing of the nervous system um, and, and many more. So, um, yeah, there wasn't definitely wasn't a silver bullet, but it was kind of the more the more I dug, the more the more I found. And then and then actually the my path took a slightly different um, way when the science, the science is the main part of the book, but there were some questions and areas that I felt it couldn't address, like the more mysterious and the more metaphorical um, sides of the relationship with nature, kind of more spiritual, mm. maybe some might say. So, so that took me into a slightly different um, research area where I talked to the chief druid and read the works of Young um, and so on, trying to kind of trying to just like look at it from all sorts of angles. Mm. Um, yeah. I was um, trying to explain to my husband, um, having read one of the chapters about awe, um, that that whenever he you know saw something that was awe inspiring, he should really let it sort of wash over him and let it let it fully experience you know the awe because not only is it wonderful to experience something awe inspiring, but 
the the amazing impact that it has to, on inflammation within the body. Um, and you just touched touched on it there. Would you mind talking a little bit more about about the simply what awe can do for us when we're in nature? That feeling. Sure. Yeah, I loved I loved this um, this relatively new science, which um, is mostly led by this guy Dasher Keltner in California in his lab. So um, he and his research group have been yeah studying how awe affects the body and the mind why or might have evolved um what awe is and so on um and so even today despite our disconnection from nature um still many of us get our experiences of awe from from nature um we might you know all think that yeah feeling awe inspired is a positive feeling and it makes us makes us feel good um but some of the studies that this lab came up with um just kind of illuminated it a bit more so one of them um was i think by a scientist called Jennifer Stella and she found that awe was the only positive emotion which was associated with lower levels of a biomarker called cytokines so that means a lower level of inflammation and inflammation is a kind of um well there's a good kind of inflammation and a bad kind and you don't want the kind of chronic low level inflammation which a lot of us in the kind of industrialized world have um so feeling awe could kind of could decrease levels of inflammation um and then the other thing they found out which was quite quite surprising to me um was that feeling all can make people kinder and more generous. So in studies, um, I think one of them, um, a researcher kind of dropped all his pens or something like that. And if someone, if the, the group who had been shown kind of awe-inspiring images were more likely to help pick up the pens or in a different study, be more willing to share the winnings of, of, of a cash a cash prize or something. So they concluded that feeling awe makes people more kind of pro-social and, and outward facing. Um, and they associated that, which, which interested me, with um, decreased activity in um, the default mode network of the brain. And that's the area of the brain which is um, associated with of rumination and brooding mm. and that interested me kind of personally because I definitely um find when I'm in nature I'm seeking that sense of getting out of myself and kind mm. of getting out of my own kind of my my thinking my anxieties etc my worries I'm wanting mm. to tune into something bigger than myself um and kind of get out of myself um so yeah, I, I I I love his work. I thought it was fascinating, and and I think that we can we sometimes think maybe that or you can only get it from white water rafting or you know the Grand Canyon and so on, but I think it's possible to cultivate a sense of awe and wonder um, anywhere. I mean, even in I live in a very urban area, and I get a lot of my awe from moss and lichen and. Um, you know, little plants in the cracks of the pavement and so on. Um, so I think there's a lot of awe out there if we if we try and tap into it. Mm. I mean, you just mentioned that you, you live in an urban uh, area now and, you know, we do all, I think, we are defined as an urban species now. Many of us, uh, majority of us live in, in urban 
dense, complicated cities um, full of people. Now, I wonder whether your book um, or, or your research uncovered why perhaps we seem to withdraw from something, from withdraw from nature that's so beneficial and so positive for us. Why instead we move away from it or we put up barriers between us and it uh, or we other it in some way? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, I think there is, it's a, it's a great question and there are so many so many ways to answer it and there's so many reasons um for it um i think essentially i think a lot of the problem is is a kind of um, a collective amnesia like a sense of just forgetting um mm. you know there are so many distractions in our busy modern lives um and we are very boxed in, you know, something that the chief druid um, said to me in an interview, you know, we go from one box into another box to another box um, and we leave life in a box. You know, we eat our food out of boxes. Um, we're all very boxed in and and kind of going outside can feel like a, an afterthought. Um, and, I, you know, I think that we kind of have overlooked how crucial contact with the natural world is. Um, and I suppose part of that, I would argue, is being in a kind of late stage capitalist world where you know, we are um, agents of productivity uh, and kind of slowing down in our culture and society and you know, spending time contemplating um, a weed or some moss isn't kind of doesn't lead to anything so it's not really um kind of rewarded you know it's, it's seen as a waste of time um and I, I mean I, of, of course we live in you know the, the the nation which um where the industrial revolution happened and you know we've been extremely industrial for for two three hundred years um it's hard to kind of separate you know that that obsession with progress and growth and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that could be another book. You know, it could be many books. It's such a really important and big question to kind of um, drill down into why there's this estrangement and disconnection. Um, I mean, I think that if we look at how we build our urban areas, urban areas, our cities and our towns, our school curriculums. Um, nature is so on the margins and it's so kind of seen as an afterthought or a luxury or a frill or something kind of extra you know we we kind of just put it into the side um, and I think that's very dangerous and, and it's really unfair as well because um, you know it's it's inequitable how that nature is kind of spread out and who gets to access it and so on um, you know because as a culture and as a society we don't we don't see it as central to our lives um mm. which I think the science is showing that it absolutely should be mm. I think I read somewhere that um that our, our children are suffering from something called nature deficit disorder which is um almost an inability to to access or reap the benefits of of nature because they have not been exposed to it or don't necessarily have a preference to it 
um, a preference for it. And so um, if nature doesn't necessarily mean anything to us, um, then it's more difficult to, to be awed by it or inspired by it or restored by it. Um, did do you find some of that in your research, particularly looking at equitable access to, to the natural world? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's this kind of saying in envir the environmental world that um, with children kind of to, to get them into nature and, and to kind of encourage opportunities that might lead to someone to become someone who loves nature and wants to protect it, you have to get, get them while they're young. Um, and that does seem to be in, in the research and evidence of a, a child is exposed to nature and has the chance to fall in love with nature and, you know, be excited by it and know it, then, you know, as adults, they will be more pro-environmental and, um, yeah, be careful. You have to love trees before you can save trees, um, is one, one quote I heard. Um, and I think that, as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, with all those beautiful words being taken out of the Oxford Children's Dictionary, you know, like conquer, acorn, blueberry even, or no, blackberry, mm. otter, so on, so many lovely words. I don't think it's, it's not really the fault of the dictionary. It's just a reflection of our society, you know, and where we're, what we kind of place our value in. Um, and there are so many studies now and so much research to show that, feeling engaged or connected with nature as a child um, has measurable kind of benefits on on a child in their childhood and then and then as adults um, for disadvantaged children mm. um, nature can act as a kind of buffer against stress um, children who live in areas of green space are found to have higher IQs um, uh, and it can also have um you know, it leads to better mental health and well-being and physical health too, um, with opportunities to kind of have more wild play and more freedom and so on. Um, there's no shortage of reasons why children need more nature. Um, in terms of kind of the inequity of access, I think that's something that's been shown, you know, shown so, so uh, such a light has been shone on that this year, you know, mm. that... Um, different communities have have less access and it's and it's an injustice you know it's an environment and an injustice that some people don't live within walking distance from a park um and that higher quality green space um you know which has maybe more biodiversity and so on more opportunities for beauty and you know, s smelling flowers and, and so on, mm. play, are more likely to be found in affluent areas and less likely to be found in disadvantaged areas. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of unfair and it's unequal. Um, mm. And I hope that that's something that might come out of this year, that we've seen how important nature is, um, you know, for, for our health, for our well-being, and mm. how children need to have more equal access. But there is... Um, kind of an exciting movement, which I write about in New Eden. So forest schools becoming more popular for kids and there's lots more outdoor kind of nurseries and there's lots of great um, organisations trying to 
you know, do outdoor classroom days and um, get kids to be learning more outside and kind of uh, pushing back against this kind of creep enclosure of children indoors. I mean, we probably all, most of us might remember, have our happiest memories of being kind of outside playing as kids and you know, climbing trees and making mud pies and all the, all that kind of sensory stuff. I have um, a four-year-old and a one-year-old and they're so much happier outside when they can just kind of, you know, get dirty and, mm. and smell things and all that, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I got a lot of hope from visiting forest schools and outdoor nurseries and seeing, seeing kind of a bit of a grassroots movement to connect children back with nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one, I run past one every now and again, and it fills me with so much hope and joy, just all the little toddlers playing in the dirt, which I think is beautiful. Um, so let's just talk a, a little bit about, you know, what good mental health means in the in the concept of, of the book. Um, and and in, in particular, which ways does nature restore us? Because I think instinctively we know that it's it feels nice and it looks nice and that we should spend more time in nature. Um, but I think, you know, reading the book, there was so many surprising uh, ways that, that nature interacts with us. So you talked about the soil and the, uh, the bacterium in the soil and um, this idea of soft fascination. And so uh, would you mind just talking a little bit about all the kind of really powerful ways maybe unexpected ways that nature can help to restore us yeah sure um so maybe I'll start with the soil one um that that surprised me I think I saw in like a Facebook group someone talking about this bacteria that's found in soil called M. Bacchi, um which is which someone said had antidepressant like effects and that, when I read that I thought that sounds very kooky and unlikely, um, but I thought I'd look into it. And at the just same, before, just before you, I just want to share something. So I used to give a seminar about this, and I used to give the the participant people at my seminar bags of soil and explain to them um, a little bit about what you're about to explain. But I had to stop people eating the soil because that is what they thought I meant by giving them. This is why it's good for you. And there'd be people in the seminar <laughs> snacking on soil. So, um, yeah, so maybe... <laughs> Adults or children? No, adults, grown up. Like, oh, this just mean for us to be eating it. <laughs> no, like talk about, well, yeah, what, what's so good about the soil? Don't eat yeah. it, but it's got other properties. That's so interesting because, um, yeah, ch- children naturally eat soil. And it's something that um, one of the microbiologists I spoke to said that kids across the world always eat soil. So obviously if adults get the chance to... Yeah, that's it. They're not shy either. Um, yeah, so so there's this bacteria found in soil called Mvaki. And um, I, I was interested in it at the time personally because I was I moved to a house with a garden. I'd never had a garden before in adult life. I got really into gardening and I just felt so much better afterwards. So I always felt like really restored and just kind of, um, yeah, just, just, just good. And I wondered kind of what that, what was that buzz was coming from? Was it just the magic of growing stuff or, you know, being outside and hearing the bird song and so on? Mm. Was there something actually, you know, going on? So I spoke to a few um, um, of the leading scientists who study this bacteria. And um, 
essentially they confirmed that yeah, that MVACI in studies um, boosts serotonin, which is the kind of the chemical associated with happiness in the brain, um, and they are kind of trialing it at the moment with how it could be used as a treatment for people with PTSD. Um, and, you know, so if you've wondered why your gardening buzz might last last for a while afterwards, you know, it could be because of um, breathing in this tiny, friendly bacteria. Um, and one of the scientists, Graham Rook, who's kind of one of the leading guys who, who, who talks about this um, old friends hypothesis, old friends meaning... You know, the bacteria that we have evolved with for many, many years, you know, millennia, which now we live in kind of urban areas where we are disconnected from the land and you know, we live in kind of air-conditioned houses and so on or work in air-conditioned buildings. We don't have as much exposure to those elements. Um, and, uh, you know, he talked about how there's a link between the friendly bacteria inflammation and also psychiatric disorders and, and, and mental health. Um, so these, you know, these tiny bacteria might be a lot more important than we give them credit for. Um, and then a couple of other um, examples I loved were, yeah, I touched on it briefly, but petrichor. So that's the smell of the earth after it's rained, you know, and it smells like mm. kind of metallic and it's lovely. And there's a, interesting study which found that the, that smell which the chemical compound is called geosmin activates areas of the brain associated with relaxation and calmness um, so it's not just a nice smell it actually is you know restoring your brain and making you feel relaxed um, the same kind of effect happens when we look at look at fractal shapes so a lot of this work is done by a guy called Richard Taylor in the states um, and fractal means um, kind of the same, the same shape, self-repeating. So they're everywhere in nature, um, you know, on a tree or the leaves are kind of the same shape, but they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Salt flats, lightning, uh, fractal broccoli. Um, it's just the whole of nature is basically fractal. And you can even see it. And I always see fractals now in the kind of tiny cracks in the pavement of the weeds, mm. you know, these little sprays of fractals. And this guy Taylor found that when people look at the particular dimension of fractal found in nature, which is between 1.3 and 1.5, it would trigger um, areas of the brain associated with um, calmness and relaxation, um, more so than any other, like Jackson Pollock, for example, paints and fractals but that that wasn't it wasn't the same effect um and then I think one of the big theories was two actually but there's a attention restoration theory which was developed um in about 20 years ago by the Kaplans um and you mentioned soft, soft fascination which is mm -hmm. an element of that and it basically means that when we are in nature so you know when you're looking at a tree or a tree moving in the breeze or water kind of falling on a river or waves or so on your your cognitive side of your brain is kind of given a bit of a break so you're not you're kind of it's a it's a focused attention but it's not kind of directed attention you know like when you have to really focus on something and it's quite tiring it's a 
it's a it's a kind of more chilled low low key attention and they and they've studied this for years and believe that that's what nature can do for people it can kind of give our minds and our brains a rest um and one of the elements is soft fascination which is that idea of I just think that's such a nice phrase just like <laughs> I agree I love yeah. it <laughs> yeah like looking at you know tr- I, I really like watching um rain dropping into my local canal just like you know when you kind of you kind of go into a bit of a trance state and you're just kind of fixated by something but it's it feels really relaxing mm. and then afterwards you feel like oh okay like restored and so that that theory has been studied and analyzed in lots of different ways um one one is kind of the the effect of micro breaks on people working in offices and productivity mm. so they found that if um workers were given a kind of um chance just to look out onto green roofs or onto a tree in the working day that it would kind of restore mm. restore their productivity give their minds brains a break um and the other, I mean, there's so many things to mention, but I'll just mention one more because I could just go on. Um, I think that the the effect of nature on the nervous system is is important and probably makes sense um, to a lot of people. So studies suggest that when we're in nature, our um, parasympathetic nervous system is more likely to be activated. And that's the one that's more associated with kind of rest and digest rather than the sympathetic nervous system which is fight and flight um adrenaline the you know the one that you just probably have on too much if you're anything like me in you know, in the modern world um you know because we have it you're crossing a road it's kind of stressful and you've got loads of emails and you know all this stuff happening and the parasympathetic one is just gives the gives the body a bit of a break and that is more likely to be activated when we're in natural spaces um and uh and and kind of connected to that is stress recovery theory which which shows that we recover quickly and more completely from stress in natural environments compared with built environments um so yeah i mean it 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 all all together it it kind of builds a kind of unequivocal picture that mm. we need we need nature to to feel good. Mm. I mean, it almost suggests uh, it, that it's an antidote to the way we live our lives today, and that you know the 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 rate and the pace and the stress and the pressure that we put ourselves under in order just to be productive um, human beings. Um, we can't continue at this rate forever. You know, there must be, you know, a finite amount of resource, a finite amount of energy that, you know, we can't keep racing in this way. And that if we only were to acknowledge the power that nature has to be an, an effective antidote, then we might be able to sort of coexist and live more healthy, productive, happier lives. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's, there's kind of, two things going on there and what what you say it's both kind of the individual um the individual can't go at that pace but also as a society um you know we can't continue to to use the planet in the way we do um it's you know it is finite both Mm. um the kind of modern way of living and also you know as as a society so Mm. yeah so um if 
you, you talk a little bit about this in, in the book, but if, if for whatever reason, you just really don't like being outside in the great outdoors, I think Woody Allen is very famous for saying that he really hates nature. Um, are there ways that you can, you might still be able to reap some of its benefits? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was really conscious when writing the book that, um, I have like friends who get a lot of their restoration, um, from other things, you know, and, um, you know, whether that might, you know, there's all sorts of things that could be. Um, and you know, it's not the case that everyone wants to climb trees on the weekend. Um, but I think one of the, one of the things I found quite powerful and helpful was this idea of background nature. So that's a kind that's a phrase from the literature. And, and it means that even if we're not people who, you know, want to go out and get muddy every weekend, having background nature on our streets, so living in tree-lined streets, um, living in areas where there is higher biodiversity is associated with better mental health and well-being. People who live near the sea have better mental health. Um, people who live on a tree-lined street have better mental health, etc. Um, but I think if we, yeah, if we're not, if we're kind of ambivalent, I guess, about nature, but we want to reap some of the benefits, I would just say doing little changes like walking through a park on the way to a shop or to work or wherever you're going has been found in studies to um, buffer the stress of being in a busy urban area. Mm. Um, so you don't have to be, you know, on your knees sniffing the soil. It's just a case of being just this study particular, so an, a study from Edinburgh um, um, found that just walking through a park buffered the stress of the of the group who did it of of being in a busy loud urban area mm. so so doing things like that and then there's also um some evidence to suggest that you know what looking at nature images or listening listening to bird song um what about um house plants bringing a little bit of nature into the house Absolutely, yeah, and and fractals, like I mentioned before. So there's lots of fractals, obviously, in in house plants, um, and yeah, the colour green, and then there's of course the metaphorical kind of almost um, hard to put into words power of growing something. Mm. You know, it's kind mm. of it, it it gives you a sense of well being and hope. I mean, I'm someone who often kills house plants, so it can work work both ways. Um, um, and for people who might think, you know, they don't have the time to, to go out into nature, you know, how much time should we expect, should we be out in nature for it to have a, a beneficial effect on us? Yeah, I think um, there were some some scientists who tried to kind of work out what like the perfect dose of nature might be. And I think they came up with 30 minutes. Um, but I... I think anything is better than nothing. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, that study was literally the Edinburgh one was just people walking through a park, you know, a, a tiny um, change to their day to day. Um, but I guess also, I mean, things like I, I try and meet friends for walks now more. I mean, obviously this year, that's mm. what everyone's doing more of, but I try and incorporate kind of more, nature and outdoors in that way kind of just 
kind of bringing it into the day to day. Um, I guess one of the things that the the research of losing Eden showed me was that um, I like like spending time in nature isn't a self isn't an indulgence. It's not mm-hmm. something which um, well it, it's it's proven it has proven many proven benefits, but it's almost like as important as you know, getting a good night's sleep or, um, eating a a good diet for me anyway, you know, it has, it has a myriad of potential therapeutic benefits. I think kind of going back to what we were talking about before, you know, we can, we can see, um, communing and finding a kinship with, with nature as something not productive or, you know, our culture doesn't really kind of reward, reward that, but you know the evidence is so clear that it's not an indulgence to spend time with nature. It's it's really good good for us. And at a time when um, you know as humans we are destroying the rest of nature, um, having a kind of relationship and trying to think about a reciprocal relationship with with the rest of the living world strikes me as very important. Mm. If we're going to kind of turn the course of history, um, you know, which isn't going in a great place at the moment, you know, we're not going to save, we're not going to work to kind of stop destroying nature unless we love it. Mm. No, 100%. And um, just in closing, Lucy, we've only got a couple of minutes, but I think um, it'd be great for you to mention you know the end of the book which is very hopeful and I found that quite uplifting because there was a lot in the book that frightened me made me sad made me angry but at the end you talk about just you know how can we uh, turn back towards nature and, and perhaps talk a little bit about that in closing sure um yeah there was a lot of really hopeful things um that I kind of I stumbled upon, um, like the forest school movement that I mentioned. Um, there's also this kind of biophilic city movement, which is where people are really thinking about ways of making urban living kind of sustainable and um, habitable for both the human and the non-human. Um, you know, there are ideas like the 15-minute city, which is coming out of Spain, I think, where you know people can get around in 15 minutes, and it lower air pollution but also things like you know green roofs or making um kind of recreation areas of green space more biodiverse and wilder and kind of you know allowing the rest of nature to flourish alongside us um um and i think there are there's a lot of um hope and power to be had in kind of local activism and making kind of kind of you know joining with your community and something that I've been doing a bit over the last year you know gathering and just trying to make a difference that you can in kind of your local your local area um I've been planting some trees on my street and rewilding a patch at the back um and it has been a lesson in how how possible it is to actually make a a difference in the local area whereas whereas it can feel quite you know the headlines and and the science of the climate and ecological crisis can feel very big and overwhelming and quite paralyzing um and eco anxiety is something i look at quite a lot in the book mm. but i have found that just trying to make a bit of a difference and doing what doing what we can 
to mm. um, you know, make your garden wilder if you have a garden or put um, a bird box on your balcony if you can. Mm. Um, and there are little things that we can do, um, but top down change is also needed as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and you put it beautifully in the book, the first thing that we can do, the smallest thing perhaps is just to observe and to notice, as you mentioned at the beginning of our chat, you know, just starting by um, being in awe of the small changes that happen around us um, and then working, working up to the big top down changes that are absolutely needed. Um, Thank you, Lucy, for this beautiful chat. And I, as you can probably tell, highly recommend everybody rush out and read this book. And I think that this should, this should be something that is taught in schools, Lucy. I think it's that powerful. So thank you for writing it and thank you for putting so much thought and attention and research into this book. It's a, it's a brilliant read. Thank you so much. And thanks for a great chat and your, your great questions. It's really nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Join me next time when I catch up with Professor Robin Dunbar, Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. We explore the biology and psychology of connection, friendship, and what your social circle says about how long you're likely to live. See you then. See you then.